You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Forty years ago, this is Emeritus Rex with Rabbi Ruben Yoshua Pupko of Beth Israel, Beth Aaron, Coat St. Luke. You know what uh, it is. You know that it's north of the border. Uh, Rabbi, uh, uh, it's been a number of weeks. A lot of things have occurred uh, in our world, the Jewish world and beyond. Um, it's hard to even know where to start. But let's start. Uh, you want to start with Oscar predictions. <laughs> See, <laughs> look, when they started, when they started, uh, nominating 10 movies i think it is right i mean who can hold cup who can hold cup 10 movies 10 movies right you know uh, it's a, listen it's a daunting challenge but we have to try and, to rise to the occasion. and 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 you have you know and, and movies are streaming it's art used to be movies tv was all there was the emmys and the oscars today with streaming right oh it's very it's all, you, you, you don't even know, know what you don't even know what's going on we grew up in the golden age of hollywood Look, have you been to a movie? Have you gone out to a movie theater lately? No, absolutely not. Yeah. No, not because of COVID, but because like there's no reason to. Yeah, you you pay so much money. You sit in a seat. You have to be quiet. You can't stop the you can't stop the film and and go out and go to the bathroom or something like that. So the whole theater experience, I think, is um, is, is know, really- it, the whole idea that I mean, people, you know, kids today, kids today don't appreciate how good they have it. I mean, when we were kids, you had to go to the bathroom. You missed an entire seed from all of the family. Now you just pause. You pause. The world revolves around you. Yeah, you might come back in time to hear the flushing sound from Archie's toilet, which they used to do a lot. I remember that was that was a big deal. That you could actually show a toilet on TV. That was like a right. Right. up until then. You figured people were like Barbie and Ken dolls. That there was that there was no need to do anything. They were um, just look. died. The uh, the oldest son on uh, from my three sons just passed away. Uh huh. Um, I I always liked the adopted son. I always liked him. There was like they adopted a kid. Yeah, yeah. Like he was like this, he was a nerdy kid with glasses, and then yeah, yeah. And they, that right. Of course, Uncle Charlie was a big goggle. You got to admit. Oh yeah, Uncle Charlie. Who wouldn't have wanted to? Who would have wanted to be raised with an Uncle Charlie? Says yeah. Ahmed. Yeah. the The truth is, is that you know Uncle Charlie was played by William Demarest. Now, the original Uncle Charlie was actually Bill Frawley. It wasn't Uncle. He had a different name. I forgot what it was. Right, right. From 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 I Love Lucy, and he was there on the first year, and then he died. Um, right. A very despicable character, uh, William Frawley. I think as uh, he was, pl- I think he, the guy who's playing him is up for an Oscar. J.K. Simmons, who plays him in uh, Being the Ricardos, so they show how disgusting oh, yeah. of a person he was. But then Demaris came in, and then I realized when I knew more about movies that he was actually quite an actor. William Demaris, he had been in, in, in a lot of wonderful. Uh, films when he was growing up and he was just slumming in television i mean kind of like barbara stanwick in the big valley barbara stanwick actually had a lot of covid atzma in the big valley i'm saying right Right. 
I mean, she was she was like the the pay, the matriarch of the family. I mean, you know, you, you got, I'll tell you the, the big uh, intro, the music of the Big Valley. Dun dun da dum, da dum dum, da da dum, da dum da dee. You you figured like you were you were going to the Grand Canyon. This must be the most marvelous experience you've ever had, right? And Lee Majors, right? <laughs> as, 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 Right, the momser, the momser's son who would come in over there. Yeah, yeah. I actually, you, you look. You got to admit, music does a tremendous amount to enhance, as if you're watching something extremely important instead of something like some soap opera that's ridiculous. <laughs> but you're right. We were definitely more impressionable, and kids are more cynical, and, and the idea of the movie experience seems to be gone. Yeah. You know, in fact, we. Look, everybody gets their media from a different place. Everybody is connected in a different way. The world is is, is completely. And the only thing left that people share on it, I mean, everyone has said it. It's no kiddish. Everyone is Super Bowl. Besides the Super Bowl, nothing gets significant. Right? I mean, when when Mash was on, everybody watched it. There were three networks, and everybody watched Mash. Everyone watched All in the Family. Oh, yeah, well, they, something they wanted to talk about. I mean, the biggest hits on on HBO. Game of Thrones and these shows that everybody talked about, the the, the numbers for old sitcoms are, are, are so much higher in terms of, course. of well again this is what you you want the first time we ever had a discussion you talked about boutique Judaism you know it's boutique everything you know you can if you uh, you know the phenomenas don't become phenomena anymore and and maybe society is happier this way I think you know this is really a serious point because I think it really when we talk about how um, variegated we are how how distinct and different and you know everybody finds their niche whether it's what they want to watch and the news where they get it from the people that they listen to um the sites that they have or their playlist i i think that does do a lot in terms of separating people and of course you've been uh involved in you know the the ukraine and the horrors of the ukraine you were there on site and I think incidents like this, like the Ukraine, uh, the invasion of Russia, the Ukraine, um, really sort of melt away uh, the little caves that we all live in, the individual caves we live on. I think it's- I hope so. Again, it's, it's hard to know what, 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 what is, what is, what's sustainable from this. In other words, there's no question that the fighting spirit of the Ukrainian people, uh, the charismatic leader who has been so effective, Zelensky, has in fact rallied, you know, what we used to call the Western world, the free world, you know, the people who want us, you know. It also is clarified for a lot of people, you know, that some of the things we think are so important aren't. Now here you have a, a people courageously fighting for life and liberty, and some of the squabbles that have dominated our brains in, in America and elsewhere over the last couple of years, more and more, aren't all that significant in the face yeah. of all of this. Look, I, I, I agree with you. I think, you know, as we were both in the rabbinic field, which is why we call this Emeritus Rex, um, you know, before b- before Purim, I said, you know, we're going to be finding Evionim. But we have to realize that there are Evionim. You, you ain't seen Evionim yet until you see the people who are refugees who have lost their home house and everything. Right. They have to put everything in a potato sack. And, and and move out as you saw when you were in Pshemishol. So yeah. you know, talk about Evionim. I mean, I I encouraged my group of people that I have you know somewhat influence on 
to to make those donations. I'm sure you did too, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's the reason you go. You go in order to be able to advocate. And you see something for yourself. You're able to to you know to strand you know to to more uh, persuasively talk to people about the conditions uh, at the border and in Poland and places like Hungary and Moldova, where all the refugees uh, are headed. But again, overwhelmingly to Poland, and. Um, and, you know, and it's a, it's it's a you know it's a it's a moment of challenge, and uh, so far I think you know we can be proud of the yep. generally proud of the Western response. Yeah, yeah. you know, again, I, I know it, it, it's sort of like an elephant swatting a gnat, um, and this is not uh, any allusion to your girth, but you know that there was an article by Arno Rosenfeld in the Forward where he questioned uh, the types of trips, the trip that you just took, and was well, he didn't really. He questioned. I think he was quoting some. Yeah, I know. I know. I I, I miss yeah, it. Yeah. Before. Okay, go ahead. The seven criticism seems to be: look, it's a photo op. You don't. You mentioned on the last program how 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 emotional you felt giving out blankets to refugees, which really, as we say in, in halacha, efshalasas de acher. And there are people who who speak the language who maybe would be more effective. Um, there was a sense like like it's too many people coming like to give blood after nine eleven. You know, like okay, we, maybe what you should do is, and I'll mention it by name because I don't care. Uh, Yankowitz was talking about okay, you know, maybe the rabbis here should be worried more about trying to work on bringing the refugees perhaps beyond Poland, but into our country, working with getting them through into the United States. Maybe that should be the muscles. I'm not sure why it's in either or. I'm not sure why one doesn't complement the other. The purpose of going, right, is twofold. Number one, to help a very little bit. And it's very little. But we help a little bit. But most importantly is to come back and advocate for uh, uh, for uh, more generous refugee policies and for aid to be sent. That is the purpose of the trip. The purpose of the trip is to more persuasively ag- uh, advocate on behalf of the refugees. That's the reason to go, be able to come back and tell the story. Because again, you can't compare what you read in the newspaper or online or what you see on you know the video clips to actually seeing and looking people's eyes. That's the purpose of going. And uh, you know, everyone has their own you know own way of helping. Uh, I, no one should question. You know, there's a you know there's a huge number of Jewish of, of Jewish groups and and, and general groups providing aid and everyone has a right to pick their own favorite anybody from you know uh, Hatsala or Magen David at Dome or or, or or any other organization that's helping there and, uh, and people should help and there's different ways to help but there's no question that advocating on behalf of the refugees in two ways again aid and liberal refugee policies are the most important things you can do right now and and, and let, let's talk about where you see, I know you told me, obviously Poland is, is the closest place. Um, you know, you already predicted a number of weeks ago when this broke, and I would say Emeritus Rex was one of the first to uh, to be out there. And you predicted that it was not going to be an easy fight. You felt that there was going to be a lot of resistance. Um, is it just, you know, propaganda talking about, you know, the the Ukrainians really standing off and well, I'll tell you something. What's very interesting is we're now in week four In week one, everyone's astonished. Ukraine didn't collapse immediately. And the Ukrainians are fighting. Nobody was more astonished than Putin himself. Uh, so much so that he actually fired, then imprisoned the head of his intelligence unit that deals with Ukraine. They did. They, they expected 
half the country to rise up and start and start you know and, and, and welcome the Russian troops. Putin drank his own Kool Aid here, and and they were st- astonished at the response of the Ukrainians. Then about a week into the war, everyone said, "All right, listen." They were tougher than usual, but the overwhelming power of Russia ultimately will, you know, determine uh, the future. And therefore, as plucky and as courageous as Ukrainians have been, there's no way they can, you know, overcome this extraordinary power. Here we are in, the, in week four, and that hasn't proven to be the case. Uh, the Russians, without restraint, are leveling cities like Mariupol, uh, are pushing and pushing, but the Ukrainians keep pushing back. This morning, there's a report they actually pushed the Russian troops further away uh, from Kiev. So, uh, you know, there's also a lot of reports. And again, everything should be, you know, uh, seen through, uh, you know, a healthy dose of skepticism. But there are reports of Russian soldiers shooting themselves in the leg to get out of service. You know, demoralization amongst the Russian troops. Russians shocked to discover who they were fighting against. They were told they're going to fight Nazis, and they end up seeing men, women, and children. So it, there are there are stories of demoralization. There is internal dissent in Russia. There is a huge outflow of Russia's greatest talents out of the country. They're running away to Yerevan and other places trying to get out. It's not easy to get out anymore because so many air routes have been closed down. The tech people and people in the arts checking out of the country. Uh, we hope that can continue. We hope they continue to have the freedom of movement, but in the economic sanctions are certainly hurting. So, uh, uh, I, 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 you know, is it possible that Putin will lose? That Russia will lose? More and more people think it's possible. Wow. Which is, you know, that that would definitely. He's a guy like Elliot Cohen, the Atlantic, you know, and and that's what that's the you know that, that he makes a strong argument that. You know, we shouldn't be talking about freezing the conflict or how to get Putin to climb down his ladder and Zelensky to climb down his ladder. What we should be talking about is Russia losing. Well, that would definitely uh, be something that would uh, put Putin in the um, the ignominious uh, hall of shame for, for Russian yeah. leadership. You know, let, let's talk about uh, something which I know you have thought about. Uh, and I sent you some articles about it, you know, last week, uh, Israel. Now, again, you already mentioned how careful Israel had to be. Zelensky, of course, was pushing for Israel to be a broker. Um, you know, we, we, you know, you've talked about the uh, Russian allowance for uh, Israel to strike targets in Syria, and if Russia doesn't allow that, that basically Hezbollah and others can can come in from the north. So Israel has been very, um, uh, I guess, careful in everything they've been saying. Um, is you know uh, how is is this playing out in Eretz Israel in the with you know with in the political movement parties there? Um, should they be doing more? Are they do they feel shackled? Um, are, are they being? Is Israel being painted uh, incorrectly in the press as you know n- not doing enough, not caring enough? And- I'll tell you something. I find. Listen, I think there's no question that Naftali Bennett is put in a, in a, a very difficult position here. On the one hand, he really wants to do the right thing, and Israel has sent an enormous amount of aid. In, in, into Ukraine and 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 on the border in the border areas to help refugees. Uh, 
What Israel hasn't done is the following. Let's be blunt. What Israel hasn't done. Israel has criticized Russia, but not but in more moderate tones than other countries, but they have criticized it. They did support the General Assembly resolution denouncing Russia. They didn't support the first resolution at the Security Council, but they did support the one at the General Assembly. They have not officially, they have not officially sanctioned um, uh, uh, the Russian economy. However, its financial institutions are not providing a sanctions bypass and Israeli banks have severed relations with the sanctioned Russian banks. The government hasn't officially sanctioned Russia. Now, there are two arguments why Bennett was restrained from doing so. The two arguments are, number one, uh, Israel does rely on Russian cooperation when it, when it goes into, when it bombs Syria to interdict arms shipments from Iran to Hezbollah in southern Lebanon, and when it targets Iranian Revolutionary Guard sites in Syria. So they, they need to have a free access to the airspace of Syria, which Russia certainly helps uh, helps uh, you know accomplish. The other issue is, and again, people can be skeptical about this, but the British have confirmed it that Israel right now is the leading mediator between Russia and Ukraine, and obviously in that role there are restraints, and that in order to maintain dialogue with both sides, you can't say everything you might want to say or do everything you might want to do. Some of the criticism has been really outlandish. Why doesn't Israel send the Iron Dome? And anyone who knows anything about the Iron Dome knows, number one, te- technically it's impossible because in order to ship them, the only plane that carries them, it's very interesting, the only plane that carry, could carry the Iron Dome was actually blown up in this war. It was the, it's, it's, it's a huge transport plane called the Antonov. I don't know if you saw, I remember the second week of the war, yeah, the, the Russians bombed it. So, so the plane doesn't exist. In order to do it now, you'd have to take it apart. And, and, and the area of Ukraine is not conducive to the Iron Dome being helpful because of the huge expanse of territory. And, 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 this, and the other point is Israel needs every single Iron Dome uh, uh, installation that they now have to cover the country. And no matter what Israel says, it's inconsequential to Ukrainian defense. And more than that, it takes about a year to figure out how to launch them. So that, that criticism is completely insane. Now, on the other criticisms uh, is about Israel should be more vigorous in denouncing. I think I've explained uh, the sanctions, you know, we, again, part of that same story. But here's the other part. And, and I hate to criticize people because, you know, I'm a lover, not a hater. But the American administration is being so hypocritical and two-faced on this that is breathtaking. First of all, India, an ally of America, has refused to criticize Russia at all. And you don't have the State Department spokesman singling out India for any criticism. And that's one of several examples. Number two, and this is even worse, the Americans are on the verge of signing a deal with Iran from everything we've heard. And part of that deal is exempting Russian-Iranian commerce from the sanctions, because in order for the deal to be sealed, and it may fall apart, there's some reporting this morning, it may collapse over a, a different issue, is that the Russians will make, the, the, part of the deal is 
First of all, the Russians are basically representing the Americans at the talks with the Iranians. The Americans accepted the insult of the Iranians refusing to talk to them, and therefore the Americans are at a different hotel in Vienna when the talks go on between everybody else and, and the Iranians. And the Russians have gone ahead and, and said, basically, the sanctions you're imposing on us for invading Ukraine can't affect um, our relationship with Iran because what the, one of the things the Iranians are demanding is continued Russian uh, support for the Bushehr nuclear reactor what the Russians are providing. And again, you remember that Russia played a role in the original JCPOA as the recipients of the highly enriched uranium that Iran had to ship out. So, so here you have the Americans carving out sanctions exemptions for the Russians while they're bombing Ukraine in order to make a deal with the terrorist state uh, of Iran, a deal that is, again, everyone now recognizes is much weaker even than the weak Obama deal. So, yeah, yeah. And then you had the worst thing happen. And this is a little complicated, but people, you know, you have to read what's really going on between the lines. There was a, um, the, the, uh, uh, Iranian drones were shot down over Syria. The Iranians then retaliated. Oh, and also the Israelis bombed a drone factory in Syria. It goes back a couple of weeks. The Iranians then retaliated by bombing what they said was an, Isra- uh, in an American and sometimes they said Israeli site inside Kurdistan, which is part of Iraq. I know everybody listening has already fallen asleep, but it's, it's, it's complicated. But then you had something astonishing happen. You had Victoria Nuland, the State Department spokesman, confirming, confirming off the record that it was an Israeli site in Iraq thereby damaging Israel's uh, security posture by revealing a secret. That is, Israel has bases in Kurdistan, right? As punishment, basically, for Israel, you know, in, you know, in, in, in how it responded to Ukraine. It's really an astonishing act of duplicity here, what the Americans are doing in terms of singling out, singling out the Israelis for, for not-so-subtle criticism on the Ukraine issue. Also, the big oligarch Roman Abramovich, right? Yes. The people in Israel. Okay, now it's been reported by the Wall Street Journal this morning that the Ukrainians asked the Americans not to sanction Roman Abramovich because of the positive role he can play in negotiations. So that it was the Ukrainians who have asked and pleaded with the West not to sanction Roman Abramovich. So you know, there's a lot of the story is much more complicated than it seems. And when you talk about sanctions. Let's be blunt, right? Russia is still selling uh, oil. And, and the reason for that is the, the Americans and the Europeans have refused to take the next step, which is to cut them off. Right now, Russia's earning $6 billion a day, right? On the, even under the sanctions regime. So, uh, you know, I, I take the criticism of Israel with a grain of salt. Right, and of course, you know, look, you, you say that it's uh, the criticism comes from left-wing commentators Bernard Avishai and from others uh, in the State Department. Um, it's of course, of course, Zelensky is really the one that's been most vocal about his disappointment. But then um, I would say the one failure, the one legitimate criticism of Israel is they should be more open to taking refugees. And 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 the, and the minister involved hasn't hasn't been cooperative at least until now. Right, and 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 all and 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 again, you know, people have. have said, of course, Israel had its own refugee problem beforehand, um, and especially since 
uh, it gets complicated because some of these people might want to say that they, you know, that they're Jewish and they would not only be refugees, but they also become citizens. The other thing which you didn't mention was the fact that so much aspect of war and really of modern life, the way we started talking this conversation today, is really um, you know, in this medium that we're talking to each other. The you know the spyware. Uh, I think that was another criticism that Israel right. was is, Israel was not um, allowing the Ukraine to get the spyware that could. In a week earlier, the world was criticizing Israel for using the spyware. I mean, it's just insane. The whole thing is just silly already. Right, but, but, it, but it's interesting how uh, multifaceted, I mean, it's not just, and, and probably World War II was also very complex, but it seems here, I mean, the, the, we, we have so much information that it, it really just isn't about the planes and the, and the tanks. It, it really spills over in, in so many different ways. And you're right, you can always zero in on one thing, um, and, and right, we, we, Listen, we what's clear now is that Biden came in as president, decided I mean, the worst thing that's happened here, and it happened to Boris Johnson also. You have a situation where the where, where the leaders of Saudi Arabia and UAE are refusing to pick up the phone when Biden calls because he decided it was a great idea to come into office and dump all over America, over the allies of the United States and go ahead and do a with a, a crazed, reckless withdrawal from Afghanistan, which diminishes American posture. So you have the Saudis now gravitating to the Chinese. You have them, you know, now, now America's, he goes ahead and shuts down the Keystone Pipeline. He goes ahead and, you know, and encourages disinvestment from oil production in the U.S. And then he goes cap in hand, begging, tries to go cap in hand to the Saudis, begging for greater oil production. He sends a delegation to the criminal regime in Venezuela, begging them to up their uh, oil production. So, you, you know, so on the one hand, you know, I mean, he's implemented policies, which has made his life much more difficult during this crisis in terms of alienating allies oh, because of, you know, his criticism of them and also because of the Iran deal. The Saudis feel they're being betrayed. And, then, and you have Boris Johnson, who just went to Saudi Arabia, wasn't granted meetings and was sent home with nothing. They're begging for oil production. At the same time, they've been diminishing is America's greatest strategic asset right now, which is its energy independence. We learned from the 70s that, it, that America should be energy in, independent. And we they, America finally achieved that through fracking, the miracle of fracking, right? And natural gas production is much less toxic for the environment than is oil. And what the, but, but the stranglehold that a couple of extreme leftists have on American government, where you have idiots even saying, this proves we have to move to a fossil-free energy. Yeah, how long will that take? No, it doesn't prove that. It proves that you have to move gradually to do everything you can for the environment. But in the meantime, not cripple yourself and your economy and your strategic posture. Well, it's definitely a, uh, as you say, a complex uh, situation. And to look at it in terms of term of in, in, in black and white, in a black and white fashion, is probably not uh, to anyone's advantage. I think sometimes what happens when you put it into stark, stark terms, you're able to stoke people's emotion, but eventually that fizzles out. And I think that's part of what what's happening. I think when the, the first week of the war, there was a tremendous shock. I think now, I think cynicism is going to start breeding 
in many corners, especially since to wrap your head around everything is, is, is going to be quite difficult. Um, let's listen, listen we, I, I happen to believe that there is, listen, there's horrible death and there's horrible dislocation and horrible suffering. And it is terribly, it is morally dubious to talk about silver linings here. However, I will anyway. And the silver linings are, are, are already the following. A strengthening of the West, of, the, of, the, of Europe's resolve, and of the commitments to NATO. That is the silver lining here. There's no question. Number two, it is a, uh, it's a wake-up call about, again, the central place, the basic struggle for freedom uh, and, and liberty should take us. And, and, but also, the other uh, silver lining potentially is a tremendous, tremendous diminishment of Russian power because the Russian army has been exposed, right, as a paper tiger here, right, where they can't, you know, walk into their neighbor like a cakewalk. Uh, the Russians have been diminished here. These are all, these are positive developments. And also, if this doesn't work, the Chinese are certainly going to think twice before ta- thinking about Taiwan. And, you know, the, the, the troubling message of all of this, the most, you know, in the long term, what's the most troubling message from this conflict is that if you have nuclear weapons like Russia does, you will, uh, uh, you will be able to protect yourself from the most vigorous kinds of responses. Because the reason there's no, no, there's the reason there isn't a no fly zone, the reason they haven't shit MIGs like they should have uh, is because everyone's afraid of a, of, of a direct engagement with the nuclear power and what Putin might do in a moment of desperation. And what the signal that sends to North Korea and Iran and other countries that may be a threshold to nuclear states is the, is the idea that if you have nukes, you survive. If you give them up like Libya, you die. If you give them up like Saddam Hussein, you die. He didn't give them up, but the, you know he lost them. He lost the capability when Israel bombed. But uh, the bottom line is, nukes mean you live, and uh, and that's a pro- that's a very problematic message. Let's end on a little bit of a Jewish note here. Uh, I, I think that you know the OU and other organizations uh, in their appeals before Purim. I mentioned my personal appeal that people should. Uh, allocate funds to, uh, especially the, the Jewish refugees and what was going on in, in the Ukraine. But we know that uh, you you mentioned the the achdus, uh, you know, the everyone is behind. We've all had to tighten our belts, bite the bullet. Um, whether the, the rise in fuel prices is the most immediate effect, there's less money out there, much less money, uh, you know. <laughs> We were all sinking in dough a year or two ago with all the monies that were being sent to us through uh, the emergency COVID uh, relief funds. Now everybody is, is 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 realizing they don't have, and and at a time when you know there's such a great need, uh, people are, are are really falling under the poverty line in many Jewish communities. I don't know if in Montreal that's that way, but the OU issued a letter trying to sort of like explain how you can still give. There are some crises going on, and and, there, and I've been hearing it consistently. Um, you know the the state of 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 in the United States. You know there has been a tremendous uptick in violent crime, as you know, and I'm sure you've read about. Um, right. 
and 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 the Jewish community is obviously very. Uh, they are exposed to be threatened by that, and um, well, no question, the, the economic consequences are uh, are not one hundred percent clear yet. But uh, inflation alone, I mean, we started talk, we, we started this conversation talking about the world we grew up in, which you know, although we remember the gas lines of the seventies, you know, we. We believed that we were going to be inheriting a world that was basically going to be great and uh, it would be the world of the future, uh, as, Wal- as Walter Cronkite well, listen, I think I think things are better than people, you know, uh, re- realize in terms of, you know, the elimination of extreme poverty in America and in many other worldwide uh, as well. But listen, inflation, start, you know. One of the other things Biden's trying to do is blame inflation on Putin, which is insane. Inflation started long before. I understand. I understand. But the, long before. But again, there's no question inflationary pressures are hurting people. That even as wages increase, those that those increases are dwarfed by the inflation. Uh, yes. Right? And in real in real earning power, people have lost a lot of money. There's no question. And and, and it's, 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 it's that's a difficult that's going to have a ripple effect, not just in the, the lack of tzedakah that's going to go on, but actually, you know, closing of schools and other types of Jewish... But Lakewood people. bought a 42-acre campus from the Catholics yesterday. So that's I a part. Yes, as uh, as Johnny Carson used to say, I did not know that. I, yes. did, I did not know that. And, and I think we have to end today, you know... Because Pesach's coming in a few weeks. There's going to be an enormous effort to help the, the Jewish refugees who have uh, left Ukraine and are still, and the Ukrainians, Ukrainian Jews who are still in Ukraine, celebrate Pesach the right way. A significant chunk of matzah production has been taken offline due to the conflict. Sure. People are scrambling uh, to recover, but there are hundreds of seders being established and organized right now. The OU plays a role in that, and other organizations uh, are doing it to, to, to facilitate a good Pesach for uh, the refugees. That's vital, that's important. That's good work. And a lot of people are doing great work here. Yeah. And, and again, you know, I think that we uh, Chaim and Kanievsky and I think that also should, as terrible as for many people, the losses, including the shock that I think is, especially from the younger generation, as the Godel Ador uh, went to his OMS, I think that that also perhaps can be tapped. Uh, the fact that there were so, uh, you know, people were able to... Well, people don't realize one thing about the Petit Rukhaim, Kanievsky's, that's all. You know, his family talked at the, at the Levaya about this, that every year he finished Kolotara Kula, right? Every year he would learn, and I mean, right. an incredible breadth of learning every single year. He made a seam on, on every era of Pesach. Right. He made a seam on Bavli, Yerushalmi, Zoyo, Medrash, Sifra, Sifri, Mechilta, everything. And I believe even the art score biography series. He made a seam on everything. Everything. That, that was a joke. Anyway, <laughs> he made a seam on everything. And he had a 12-month thing. So somebody asked the Mishpacha, I don't remember when the conversation, what did he do in an Ibri yard? Right. Is he so finished, he's finished a month earlier, yes. He finished a month early, right? Because he didn't he didn't extend, he didn't do six blood a day in an Ibri yard instead of seven. He did the same Seder Alimut. And so he finished, what did he do in the extra month? They asked him. He says that's when he wrote the Svarim. He wrote Svarim in an every in an every year he would write. He, that's when he would write. He had a month. He had finished Kol Tarukula. He used to make the Sima of Pesach. He had an extra month in every year. That's when he would write Svarim. If people don't realize he died exactly when he finished Kol Tarukula. He finished by by Shushan Purim. Yeah. 
That's when he yeah. died. He died right after finishing Kola Tyrakula. You know, and that tells you a lot about who he was in the eyes of Shemayim. And uh, and that's uh, why the people come to him. But again, as you know, I think with as Klal Yisrael's Godel, I think that this speaks that we recognize all Shidra Sauma, whether it's Ksidim, Misnagdim, uh, Svardim, uh, from all different types of countries, that uh, they recognize authenticity um, and, and reality. Whatever you want to criticize certain statements, nobody can criticize the fact that he was pure Tyra. And we all came behind that. So I think that's a, it's a, uh, the loss is, 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 I'm sure, shattering for many. But I think the response indicates the, that Achtus uh, that we have, the, the, the connection that we have. And it's something that I, hopefully we can build on um, in a way that, uh, as Rakhine would say, learn more, but also uh, realize how interconnected we are and how, how similar everything is among us. And that, I think, is probably the key to, to overcoming a lot of these uh, struggles that, are, that seem to lie ahead for us. Well, that's about it, my friends. We will catch you, Mirza Shem. We'll catch you, Mirza Shem, next week, hopefully. Take care, Rabbi. Be well. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.